And so what we've done this semester is we're, we're starting a series looking at this um, idea of what, what are the, the top 10 lies about God um, that, that we might encounter or we might kind of bite off little bits and pieces of it. I might not consume the whole lie, but some of it has kind of influenced me over time. And what's, what's kind of a, uh, initiated this series in my mind was this quote by um, Christian thinker, A.W. Tozer, where he says, and this is on your bulletins, it's on the posters, because it's just, there's, like I said, it's, it's, it's sort of haunted me ever since I first read it, where he says, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God, it is the most important thing about us. What he's saying is that your, your, uh, your conceptions about who God is, um, what he's like, his attitude toward you, what you, know, what you think about his attitude toward others, um, what, what his plans for you are, what, what you think about what his plans for you are, what his plans for others are, what his plans for his creation are, what, what you think about when you think about God informs everything, like informs all of that. And this is true on an individual level, but it's even true on a uh, societal level. There was a... Um, really interesting comprehensive study done by a Harvard University professor by the name of Robert Putnam. And he found that religious Americans, he, he was trying to assess um, how beliefs impact behaviors. And he went to sometimes what is the most core thing is like um, giving of time, of money, and that sort of thing. And Putnam found that religious Americans, and he was talking about essentially those who, who regularly attend worship service in some way, not just someone who says, yes, I'm religious, but, but, but people who are engaged, that um, religious Americans, as opposed to secular America, are enormously more charitable than their irreligious counterparts. In fact, the study revealed that Americans who regularly attend worship services, um, that 40% of those people uh, also volunteer to help the poor and the needy. Uh, for secular America, that's about 15 just to kind of give you uh, contrast. Moreover, uh, practicing religious people are more likely to volunteer for school or youth programs compared to secular at a, at a rate of 36% to 15%. Uh, more likely to volunteer for a neighborhood or civic group, 26%, 13%. And to volunteer even for health care areas, 21% versus 13%. And some people say, well, of course religious people do that because they're at church and they're, they're giving through their church. They're being guilted into giving, maybe, you know, whatever the reason might be. But it's not just giving to the church. Arthur Brooks, who is an American social scientist about that issue, said this. He said, actually, the truth is that religious adherents who are committed, you know, attending regular service, uh, they're giving to more than just the ch their churches. The religious Americans are more likely to give to every kind of cause and charity, including explicitly non-religious charities. Now, this is not about an individual people, right? This, this, it's not like if you look at a secular person, you say, well, you're this percent less likely to give. It's not about that. It's not about feeling superior. It's not about looking down your nose at someone who would, who would be secular. The point is this. Ideas have consequences, right? What you believe translates on a societal level, certainly it does. And why is this? Well, here's my guess. At least this is a piece of it. My guess is, if you're a practicing Christian, 
What comes into your mind when you think about God are probably some ideas like this. Um, I don't really own any of my stuff. God does. I'm just a steward. I'm a manager of it. Probably thoughts like, you know, if I sacrifice for this person or this cause, this, God's really powerful. He's really faithful. And he can probably meet the needs that I have as, as I give. So I can give in this sense of trust. You, you probably have ideas like God's actually called me to use my resources to impact this kingdom work that he's doing all throughout the world, irrespective of if the person is, looks like me and believes like me and thinks like me. You probably have ideas like that you're an apprentice of this man named Jesus, who when he was asked, what's the most important thing about life? That his answer was, love God with all yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. And so you kind of probably put two and two together and you go, I'm probably going to have to use some of my stuff in the process of loving others because I spend stuff on myself. So if I'm called love others, I'm probably going to have to sacrifice. I'm probably going to have to give a little bit. So you see, our ideas about God really are the most important thing about us. And so in this series, I'm challenging myself as a fellow journeying, struggling person with you, I'm challenging us to to lay my conception of God out and submit it to Scripture and allow God through Scripture to kind of reform it, reshape it, remodel it in different ways like that. So we see this is not just like, um, uh, you know, high theological thinking that doesn't have implications. Like, do you get that? there are real practical implications to what I think about when I think about God. And so last week, we looked at this idea of, well, why is it sometimes that, that, that I feel kind of disconnected from God? I kind of feel like he's distant. I kind of feel like maybe I'm, uh, you know, he's embarrassed about me or he's, you know, kind of ashamed of me or he's, he's just constantly disappointing me. Like, why do I have these feelings of distance? And we looked at these kind of five factors that, that largely contribute to me feeling disconnected from God. And we talked about this idea that there's a, there's a perpetrator. We have a spiritual enemy who works in the area of lies. That's what he traffics in. That, that we, we had parents, we had people who raised us, and many of, our many of our conceptions about God were formed, good and bad there. We, we listened to preaching and through that process, our concept of God was formed for good or for ill. This idea of projection that oftentimes I project my own weaknesses because I don't want to own them onto God, or I project some of my own wishes and dreams that might not be realistic or God's there, but I project he must want those for me too. And then finally, pride. This, this idea that, well, I'm, I'm sure I know who God is and what he's like. And, and so... Um, we, we saw that because of that, well, what's the answer? How do, how do we go around these things? How do we navigate around? How do we lay them out there? And we saw that scripture said it's by the renewing of the mind that my life is transformed. And so we said, well, okay, so how does that happen? What's, what's, what's my part in that? And, and we kind of landed on, we're saying during this whole series, we're going to be talking about various different spiritual habits spiritual practices, and the two we talked about last week were, were study and meditation. And each week, I want to give us kind of some homework of like, okay, I'm going to renew my mind. How do I do that? 
And I'm just gonna give us one simple, really easy, really basic, kind of fun maybe, thing I can do really short to, to kind of say, okay, this idea, I want to kind of like, I want to do this study meditation thing, but it's, I don't really know how to do it. You know, is it too overwhelming? Do I have to have a lot of time? No. And so at the end of each, each week, I want to give you one of those. So if you missed week one, feel free to jump online. You can download the podcast or whatever it might be. But tonight we're, we're looking at this, in this particular lie, which, which it, I actually saw this first on a bumper sticker. I, I was driving through Fort Collins and uh, you guys love looking, I just love looking at bumper stickers. I'm always just like, that's that, like when they think about life, this is what they think about, you know, it's, um, I just find it fascinating. I love it. And um, I, I pulled up this one car was just framed. They only had one bumper sticker on there, but it said this, it said, um, God is bigger than any one religion. I just thought, huh, that's interesting thought, you know, and of course, you know, my man, I'm like, what, like, give me some context. I kind of wanted to go up there and be like, hey, what do you, what do you mean? What, like, what are you thinking? Um, because, you know, I, like, I don't know what that means exactly. But as I was thinking about that, now, if, if what the person kind of has in mind is that you can't reduce God to a system, right? System of thought. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, God's bigger than some sort of constructed system or move, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God's way bigger than that. You can't reduce God to that. But if what they mean is God is bigger than any one religion, if what they're meaning is all religions are equally true or all religions are equally false, meaning religion's not helpful. You know, there's no such thing as you can't claim religious truth because God's bigger than that. Or he's ineffable, which is to say he's unknowable. So don't tell me you know God. I thought if it's that, I think that's a lie. <laughs> I don't think that's accurate. I certainly don't think that's what we see in Scripture and so I want to jump into scripture tonight. If, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be kind of popping around. First place we're going to go to is the, the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read just a couple words from the 14th chapter of Ezekiel. And if you're filling in blanks there, we're starting with, there, there are two relevant warnings as we're thinking about developing our conceptions of God accurately. There are two relevant warnings um, from God in scripture. The first one is, don't try to, this is God speaking, okay? Don't try to make me something that is compatible with your way of seeing the world. Essentially, the biblical word for this is idol. Creating an idol which is simply a conception of God. That's why we could have called this whole series Idols in the Mind or something, I suppose. To create an idol is to make God into something that's compatible with how I see and want to do life. And that's my concept of God. Many of us, when we think about God, we think it, it, it's sort of like a blank slate. And each one of us gets to kind of paint what we like and what we think about who God is. Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel, this prophet, he says that some of the, the elders of Israel uh, came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, and sat down in front of me, Ezekiel said. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. So this is God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man. These men have set up idols in their hearts. What he means is what comes to mind when you think about God. They have a certain conception of me. And they have put sinful stumbling blocks before their faces. It's blinding them. What he's saying is they have a, 
a, a wrong view of me and it's put a stumbling block in front of their face. They can't even see reality. The way they live and interact and do life is messed up and broken because they can't see because they have a false view of me, God is saying. He says, um, therefore speak to them and tell them this. This is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up idols in their hearts, puts sinful stumbling blocks before their face, and then comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will answer him appropriately. I will answer him according to his many idols, his false views of who God is, so that I may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. See, what he realizes is when you have a false view of God, I do not have your heart, God is saying. I don't have it. Something else has it. Some perverted view of what I'm like has your heart, but I don't have it. And then he says, they're all estranged from me because of their idols, because of their misconceptions about who I am, what I want for them, my purposes, my desires, my plans in the world, how I think about other people, how I engage. See, so an idol in this context, it's embracing a false view of what God is like. And many of us, we talked about this last week, we have a mixed bag, right, of what we think about. When we think about God, he's loving, but he's also legalistic. He's disapproving, but he's also compassionate. He's harsh, but he's also in, uh, in uh, gentle and indulgent. And so th this is an idolic view of God. Many of us, all of us, to one extent or another, has an idolic view of God. The second warning that we see in scripture that's relevant to this topic is God saying this, don't come to me in just any way you want. Now, this is, this is, this is the most Western, well, the most unpopular thing that we could possibly say about religion in modern West, right? That you can't just come to God any old way you want. Let me, let me give you three quick examples from, from, from Scripture about how God was trying to pound this into the minds and hearts of, of, his, of his creatures. Very Okay, third page of the Bible, we have what happening, the great tragedy. The fall. Adam and Eve rebel, and what they lose is direct access to God, right? They're banished, right? East of Eden, Flaming sword, you, you can't access me, right? It's funny, I just, as I was reading scripture, this hit me this week, I had never thought about this. The very next story that's told, page four, you know what it is? It's Cain and Abel. And the story of Cain and Abel is two brothers who have different ways of trying to access God. I just never thought about that. One guy accesses through a sacrifice of an animal. His best is first. Other guy just says he took some of his grain offering. And it's kind of weird because the Bible doesn't tell us like, well, because we're told immediately that God disapproved of, of Cain's offering, but it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us what. It's, it's possible that God had already set up as a system animal sacrifice. And it's possible that Cain was kind of saying, well, you know, that's, yeah, that's one way to do it. This is the way I prefer to access God, the spiritual life, whatever it might be. But what we see is, he says this in Genesis 4, 4 and 5, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain says was furious. <laughs> 
That's the common response of you're telling me I have to go to God through one way, through the person of Jesus. There's something infuriating about that. I can't do it just the way that I feel like or the way I want to. Um, Did they both approach the true God? Yeah. Both of them approached the true God. Um, And again, don't miss this. The very first story after humanity losing its access to God presents this idea to all of humanity that there is a need for something to mediate the interactions between sinful humanity and a holy, righteous God. That's the very first point that the author makes after humanity loses access is that it's got to be mediated. You got to do it a certain, you have to go through a certain way of doing it. A lot of question marks still. Well, how, what, what is it? I guess we'll find out, (laughs) but it's specific. It's narrow. Second example, um, Exodus chapter 10, this, this priest, Aaron, remember Aaron's Moses' brother, the, the uh, Israelites have been freed from slavery in, in Egypt. They've, they've found their location where they are. Aaron is the priest, and Aaron has many, many sons who he's kind of training in the priesthood and that sort of thing. Aaron is the one who makes sacrifices like that first one of Abel's. He makes sacrifices on behalf of the people animal sacrifices and other kinds of sacrifices of incense and lots of different kinds and that sort of thing. But um, Aaron has two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu. And uh, it's, they're sort of training for the ministry of priesthood. And, and one day we read in, uh, in this chapter, Leviticus 10, these two brothers um, kind of uh, do it their own, they kind of do the Frank Sinatra thing. I'm going to do it my way. And so they go, yeah, this is, they both kind of grab a pan and they start their fires and they throw some incense. They're just kind of their own little concoction here. They're making us as they go into the sanctuary of God and um, offer this. And um, they might've been sincere. It doesn't say that they had bad intentions, but they were kind of doing it their way. Um, And this is what we read, Leviticus 10. It says, and they, these two brothers, presented unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them to do, meaning he had commanded a certain way. This is the way that you come to me. The fire, this is extreme. The fire came from Yahweh. They made fires. This is the fire came from Yahweh, the Lord, and it it burned them to death. And Moses said to Aaron, Aaron's brother, after watching this, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, and he quotes, I will show my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the peoples. Wow, a narrow way. There's another kind of example. It doesn't have to do with access to God and worship, but it it still gets at the same idea. Remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6? Um, this guy touches the ark. Do you remember this story? It's, it, seems like, it seems like God's sort of like, whoa, is even a bad day or something? Like, so if you, if you know the story, what's happening is Israel has kind of gotten arrogant, boastful, and in their, in their warrings with the Philistines, they've lost the ark of the covenant. Philistines took it. Philistines took it with them, and time goes by. Israel goes back, and they recapture the ark of the covenant, and they're bringing it back 
okay? And as they're bringing it back, the Ark of the Covenant is on an ox cart, a couple, like some oxes pulling it, it's on a cart. And as it's going, one of the oxes stumbles. And you remember what happens? This guy, anyone in the room named Uzzah? I don't want you to feel bad. Okay, this guy named Uzzah sees the Ark about to fall. And so he goes like this to stay, well, he touches the Ark. And what happens? Yeah, he gets, he gets dropped like that. He's killed by God. God himself, right? What, what's up with that? Isn't that extreme? Here's what's wrong. Think about every movie. Think about uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Think about Ten Commandments. Any movie you've seen, how was the ark carried? Poles. Ark of the Covenant, there are four gold circles, one on each corner, and two long poles of acacia wood covered in gold are put through those rings. And there, there are four Levites who carry it. That's how God said, this is the way you will carry my presence. How was it being carried back from the Philistines? It was on an ox cart. Where had they learned that from? When the Philistines stole it, they put it on an ox cart. Their idea of engaging with God, it's more colored by their culture than by God's command, than by scripture to them. So it might seem like this capricious, capricious act of God saying, oh, you know, you messed up. You're trying to help. Sorry. He, he died as a result of the community of Israel's lack of obedience to God, but in conformity to culture. So we see this idea again and again. We can't try to make God something that is just compatible with our way of seeing the world. And we can't just come to God any which way we want. And that's infuriating. Like Cain, we have this, I don't like that. Yeah, that's called a sinful heart. <laughs> I know we don't, I don't like it either oftentimes. So here's the question. God requires some sort of mediation, a sacrifice. How is this not like, remember the Wizard of Oz? How many of you, who has not seen the Wizard of Oz here? If so, just get up and go home and watch it. It's, you know, it's way better than what we're going to do the rest of the time. Um, Wizard of Oz is great, right? Judy Garland. Remember Judy Garland, her, her goal is to get to see the wizard, okay? And when she gets there, I want in. I want access, okay? Because, you know, I need something. What is, first time, what is she told? What does she have to do? Go get the broomstick from Wicked Witch, East or West. I don't know which one it was. So, West? Was it West? Okay. We've got some hardcore Wizard of Oz fans out there. I like it. Told to go get, now, here's my question. Is this sacrifice thing kind of like, is God just like the great, Wizard of Oz? Because like, you realize when she gets it and she gets in there, he's, he was just like trying to keep her busy. He was like, oh, I didn't think you'd actually do it. Oh, uh, okay. You know what I mean? Like he didn't have answers. He's just trying to keep her busy and sort of puff up himself. So I'll have you do some things, kind of hard, difficult things. Is that what God is like when he says a sacrifice? Because it, it could easily feel like that, couldn't it? And I think the answer to why God requires this mediation, this sacrifice, it has to do with the word that I want to talk about in a second. But this is the kind of the big idea tonight. You don't, we don't get this, and I don't think this is going to make sense. Holiness. Holiness. Now, we'll, 
we'll explain what we mean by that. The word itself doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. But this gets us to this next point here in the outline. How is it that anyone is able to get to God? Number one, they must have the right mediator. They must have the right mediator. We've seen just a couple examples in the, in the, in the Old Testament of God requiring mediation, meaning this is the way you must do it in order to access me. And, and again, once humanity fell into a life of rebellion, no human, no human being can have unmediated access to God the Father. All relationships between God and his broken creation of humanity, all relationships must be mediated. It's the very first story out of the gate after the rebellion, and it's seen all throughout the rest of the pages. But here's, here's the question. If God's presence is so good, why is it bad for us? Ever think about that? I mean, we say God is wholly good. He's what? So if he's, if he's good... Why does his presence seem to be bad for us? Well, God's presence is good. Um, think, think of it like this. God is a being who is utterly unique. Utterly unique. God's great abilities to, to create this beautiful, wonderful, fantastic world and cosmos, um, his, because he has those powers, his abilities make him utterly unique of anything else that we ever might come in contact with, this kind of gets at this idea that God is holy. He's this unique, extremely powerful, life-giving being. Okay, that's, that's kind of what we mean when we talk about holiness. Let me, let me give you kind of a way to think about it, kind of a helpful metaphor. When you think about God's holiness, think about the metaphor of the sun. Okay, the sun is a unique thing, at least in our solar system, isn't it? Um, it's, it's, what, it's, it's why there's life on earth. It's, it's, it's what provides life and allows life to happen here on earth. And so in that sense, because the, the sun is so powerful and life-giving, you could say the, the sun is holy in that it's, it's utterly unique in this sense. We'll take the metaphor further. The area around the sun is also holy. And the closer you get to it, the closer you get to this holiness. And as you move further out, you kind of move further away from that. So the very powerful goodness that generates all life here on earth is also dangerous, isn't it? If you get too close, if you get too close, it will absolutely annihilate you. Well, see, in a similar way, there's a paradox to the heart of God's own holiness. Because if, if you're impure, his presence becomes dangerous. And it's not because he's bad. It's because he's so good. God is like the sun. He is so good that for something impure or weak to be in his presence, it's not that he just says, I'm going to smack that down. It can't stand in his presence. It would be obliterated by the very nature of it. Remember Moses' interaction when, when he first encounters Yahweh, this bush that's burning but not being consumed? And what he's told, don't come any closer, <laughs> right? Take your shoes off because even the ground, even the area around the sun, so to speak, even the ground, it's what? Holy. 
And Moses is getting this concept. This might be a new concept. Damn holiness. What, what, what exactly are you talking about? And so God is, is feeding this concept of, I want you to understand me and what it's like to have a relationship. But be careful. The relationship will not happen. It'll be obliterated because I am so good and because you're so broken and you're so sinful and you're impure. This is the idea. Um, if you look at Israel's history, the people of Israel, what is it that is at the, whether they were traveling in the desert or once they were set up, what is it that is at the center of their community? Literally, geographically at the center. It's their temple. Their temple is like, if you look at how they're kind of where all the tribes live, and literally at the center is the temple. And literally in the center of the temple, or at the, the heart, I should say, the heart of the temple is the, the holy of holies. It is the most holy place. It's, it's sort of the hot spot of God's presence. And you can't just, anyone can't just walk in there in the ancient world. Who could, who could walk in? Yeah, priest, the high priest, any day he wants. Yeah, one day a year, right? Day of atonement. And he, he can't just go walking in. First, he's got to prepare. He's got to, first he has to make, because he's going to go in there to make a sacrifice for the people, right? He's a mediator. But before he does that, he has to make sacrifice for himself. Because if he walks in there in an impure state, tradition tells us that they would actually tie a rope around the waist of the high priest just in case he hadn't purified himself. Because if he walks into the hot spot of God's presence, He'll be like Uzzah, right? He'll, he'll be absolutely struck dead because it's, he's in an impure state. And so we have this concept in, and there's not just one high priest because one's going to die and you got to get another one. So you've got many high priests and they do sacrifices day after day. And they do the same sacrifices, the same ones year after year. They've been doing this forever. Listen to what the Old Testament priest would do, mediating between God and people. And listen to the sharp contrast between all of the many priests who do it day after day constantly and the final mediator, the, the true mediator. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 11. And the author says this, he's speaking of this construct we have. He's a Hebrew. He knows his history. He's writing about how it is that people have had access to God, mediation. And he says this, every priest, all of them, it's been who knows how many, every priest stands, and think about that because we're going to come back to it. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering same sacrifices all the time, time after time, which can never take away sins. It, it, it doesn't do the job because you got to keep doing it. It's, it's, it's not really completing the job. And then he contrasts it. Verse 12, but this man, he's speaking about Jesus, this man, after offering uno, one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do different from the very first thing? He sat down. See, well, priests in the Old Testament, you, you, you can never finally sit down. You're always working. It's a, it's a constant, ongoing thing. He sat down, finished. At the right hand of God, he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever 
those who are being, or who are, excuse me, those who are sanctified. So think about that. Day after day, he has to, Jesus does it one time and it's finished. Those, those sacrifices could never truly take away sins. What were they doing? They were looking forward. They were shadows of the reality that one day would take. And they, they made sacrifices in faith that one day God would actually do it. Like these are weak, shadowy road signs, these sacrifices of animals. I know they can't really take away the animal, sheep or whatever, can't take away my sin. But I do it in faith, in response to the, the way that God has laid out to say, one day I'll solve the problem. Until then, this is how you show me that you trust me, that you walk in this way. And then finally, he, he sat down. See, he, he is the perfect one. He's the perfect mediator because he can finally sit down, job complete, job done. Number two, they must have the right sacrifice. You have to have the right mediator, but you also have to have the right sacrifice. Now, this is also highly objected to. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, there was a guy who was in seminary with me, and um, he, he, he was repulsed by the concept of the cross. He said, oh, so God's not happy unless there's a hanging is that it? He's the sort of vengeful God who likes to see blood spilled. Can't you see that's just sort of an archaic concept and um, something that we've kind of moved beyond, we've evolved <clears throat> beyond? Um, anytime a debt is incurred, someone must absorb the debt. Um, and let me say this. It, it, it's really important that we not understand it like this. God the Father is this angry revengeful, just ticked off guy. And Jesus is the sweet guy who appeases his anger, you know, like the uh, prime minister in you know, World War II did to Hitler. If I just give him this, he'll be kind of a little bit happy. He will, he'll, he'll stop being so angry. Well, that goes against all of scriptural data. You have to realize repeatedly in scripture, God the Father says things like this. Second uh, Peter 3.9 he says, the Lord does not delay his promises, as some understand it, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. The Father does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what he wants. If you think, oh, sure, that's New Testament, that, 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 that God's a little nicer. Well, Ezekiel, same book we were looking at, right? Ezekiel 18.23, this is Yahweh speaking. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? That's a, big, that's a good question. Which, what's the answer? <laughs> this is the declaration of Yahweh God. Instead, uh, don't I take pleasure when he, meaning the wicked one, turns from his evil way and lives? God doesn't even delight in, in, in judgment coming. Ezekiel, same book, chapter 33, verse 11. Tell them, this is God speaking, Yahweh. As I live, the declaration of Yahweh God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his ways and live. He says, repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? He's begging, begging them not to do it. Do not walk into the presence of the Son 
when you're in your condition. Do not try to move away from me. I want relationship with you. God wills for all people to be saved. And Jesus' testimony about the Father is very clear too. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. That means in purpose and will and desire and all those different ways. Second, true sacrificial love is always in some way substitutionary. Um, think of, think of some, uh, if someone has done something to you to harm you, uh, financially, they've broken something in your house, okay? They're, they're at your house and they knock over, there's a lamp, and they knock over a lamp. Well, there's a couple options. Either you can force them to pay for it, to repair it. Um, you can live without light and it's just dark. <laughs> or you can pay for it yourself. If someone has wronged you, they've, they've, they've uh, done something to hurt you, um, to forgive them, there's an element of, of sacrifice in that. There's, there's an amount of suffering uh, if, because you don't only just get wronged at the beginning, like you lose your reputation or whatever, but you also give up on the, sometimes the pleasure of getting back at them, right? I'm going to gossip about them. I'm going to do this to them. I'm going to whatever. So you're, there's an element of, of suffering to that too. Um, any, think about this. Anytime you love, if you love someone who, where their life is put together, pretty easy, isn't it? You ever try loving someone whose life is a wreck? or loving someone who, who is weak. Uh, Tim Keller writes this in his book, Reason for God. He says, all life-changing love, he's talking about the kind of love that God the Father has toward us as he moves, but also this kind of love. All life-changing love toward people with serious needs is substitutional sacrifice. He writes, if you become personally involved with them, in some way, their weakness, weaknesses flow toward you and your strengths flow toward them. See, Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary in that my weaknesses quite literally flowed toward him and his strengths, his acceptance by God, his merit flowed toward us. In the book of Hebrews, the author um, talks about this perfect sacrifice once for all. Hebrews chapter 9, just the chapter right before, 9-11 but the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place of all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption." He's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect sacrifice. And then finally, the way that, that I have access to, to God is that um, we must have the right attitudes. And there's two that are mentioned in this passage, transparency and confidence. For me to have access to God, I have to have the attitude of both transparency and confidence. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have, what's the word? boldness. Since we have boldness, that's a confidence piece, to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way he has opened up for us through the curtain, not, 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 a, not a cloth curtain, that is his own flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, he says, let us, this is the key piece, let us draw near. Oh, that's what we lost on page three. <laughs> draw near 
come in, have access to God, close to the Holy One, close to that Son. Let us draw near with a true heart. That's that transparency. With, with full assurance of faith, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. See, when I go before God, transparency is this idea that there's no pretense. God sees right through me. God sees to every corner of my heart. To walk into God's presence and have some sort of a facade is not to really walk into God's presence. And so what I'm told is that Jesus was the perfect mediator. He was the perfect sacrifice. And so what he's allowed me to do is to walk into God's presence with absolute transparency. That can be scary. I mean, being uh, like spiritually, emotionally naked, that's just, that's kind of scary. But he says with absolute confidence. Why? Because it's not about you having it all together. It's about the mediator. It's about the sacrifice. You are utterly and completely accepted and loved by God. Completely. You couldn't be loved an ounce more because of Jesus' sacrifice, because he mediated. He was that one who who was that that one door that, that pushed it open so that I can boldly go, boldly go in there. And I have absolute transparency before God the Father. But you can never go into God's presence on your own, unmediated. It just doesn't work because of who we are and because of who God is. Let me give you a, a little piece of homework. One of the things that we've, um, I, I mentioned and that we want to do every week is this idea of, okay, this is scripture. This is life transforming. So how, do, how, how might I engage with this on my own in little ways? Let me give you an idea of meditation, okay? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Um, could be any... Pick, pick one of these Hebrew passages that we read, okay? Pick any one of them. And um, let me give you some examples of, of how meditation can work. Now, reading it, that's an obvious one, right? Um, write it out. And j- just this tiny little passage here, this, uh, you know, chapter 10. Write it out in your own hand. There's something about writing it out in your own hand that, that kind of changes things. Um, go through it. And underline all of the verbs. Um, So, you know, I was looking at verse 20. uh, By a new and living way, he has opened up the curtain to us. Opened up. Underlining it. Man, think about that. God has opened a new way. He's created this new access that I can open up to him. Um, Go through and circle all the prepositions. Things like, and since we have a great high priest who is over the house of God. God's over the house. What does that mean? That is he over my life? It means he's in charge. God's sovereign. This is, this is how meditation works here. Uh, if you're kind of maybe more of an artistic person, um, sketch a picture. Are there any images that are used? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean. How would you draw? How would you sketch on a piece of paper? A heart sprinkled clean and our consciences sinless. Final words is I would say this. Pray about one thought in this passage. You might read the passage where it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean. Um, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God, show me your your faithfulness this week, God. He says you're faithful. Would you at some time in my week when I'm out talking to someone, when I'm on the phone with something 
show me something about your faithfulness and then bring this verse back to my mind. Oh yeah, you've shown yourself to be faithful. So this week, one of of these passages, do some of those things, try some other things, explore, do your own things with it, come up with new ways. It could be one sentence. I'm gonna memorize this one sentence. I'm gonna go through and do whatever it might be. I was reading this last week. There's there's a book that I got a couple years ago. Um, It's called Finding God at Harvard. And in it, it's just a collection of stories of of people who have been through Harvard and found deep, passionate relationship with Jesus from various different disciplines and talking about what it was like for them. And there was one man who was, I was reading his story this week, fantastic story. Uh, He was born in India, in Trinidad, to um, a priestly Hindu family. Um, His name was Krister Sarsen. And in this writing, it was called Karma and Christ, a Hindu's quest for the holy. And uh, he, he said in the book, he said, although I was raised to, with the belief that all religions are valid paths to the spiritual life, I knew ours was kind of more valid. <laughs> I knew really the only way to find, he wouldn't use the word salvation, moksha, release, would be through meditation. And because he said the biggest thing that stuck in my, in my life was this concept of karma that there was this impersonal system that would make me pay for everything I had done and I had to work it off. And it was this endless cycle. I would never get released because of karma. And um, he would go into into a a room in his house where he had the various deities, kind of the pantheon of of gods who he would uh, pray to or recite things in front of. And uh, one day he had this spiritual experience in bed where something pushed him back and it was frightening and scary. And he asked a guy at school, he was a young person at this point, and he said, and this boy was a Christian. And he said, I, I would I'd ask Jesus about it. I'd kind of pursue Jesus. And well, I don't know. So he said he got scripture and kind of started reading. And, and he was fascinated by this Jesus guy. And, and he said, the most fascinating thing about him was that Jesus claimed to forgive sin. And he said, who was this Jesus that he could break the bondage of karma? That he could break the power of karma and forgive sins. And so he said, I kind of liked it and got more into it and read. And I kind of liked this Jesus a lot. He said, so I thought I would incorporate him um, into the pantheon of deities uh, arrayed at this altar in in a room called a puja room. And um, he said, as, as I would say these, recite these different things from him, every time, I, every time I got to Jesus, it didn't feel right. It felt like he was wanting more than just reciting something. And he said this, thinking about our, our lie tonight. Um, God is bigger than any religion. He says, I was not drawn to religion, but to Christ I was drawn there's no system that worked. I've tried all the system, the, the person of Jesus. Um, so what do we say that God is bigger than any religion? If by religion we mean a system, that's very true. This is true because God is not a system. God is personal. And in Jesus, we're told in Scripture, the fullness of deity dwells. And uh, he went on to say uh, this idea that uh, he realized that Jesus had this phrase. He said that to be free, one had to know the truth. You know, know that passage, right? If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. He said, I, I, I read this concept that 
To be free, one had to know the truth. He said, but the truth was not some metaphysical construct that I had thought a lot about and read about all these things. Um, it was not some esoteric concept. The truth was enfleshed. And so he came to this realization and he gave his life to Jesus. And as a result, his mother gave her life to Jesus and then his cousins and brothers. And, and it was this f- family thing. And this man is a follower of Jesus. He went to Yale and graduated from Harvard, this brilliant guy. But he realized the one thing that he could never escape was the, was the clause of karma, the clause that my sins are stuck to me and nothing I do can get rid of them. But he said, Jesus said, there's a way, and I've mediated it. And it's a narrow way, because it's me. But if you walk this way, if you tether yourself to me, you have confident access to the divine, no condemnation. And you can be completely transparent, because you're completely loved and accepted. That's the cross. (laughs) That's what we're about.